Welcome to Mythos, an audio journey through the folklores and mythologies of the world. Welcome to Series 3, Folklorica Nordica. We will journey into subterranean and spiritual realms through the folklore of the Nordic world. We will encounter the shamans, the subterranean beings, the wise folk and healers, and trolls and giants of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, the Faroe Islands, and Finland. In these northern lands, we will encounter a fascinating body of tales retold to evoke not only the original magic of the stories, but also the beautiful and mysterious regions they come from. In Scandinavia's most ancient literature, there exists primordial giants whose actions and very being are identified with the origin and creation of the world. Engendered in the great chasm called Ganungagap, where the frozen waters of the cold realm Niflheim and the hot breath of the fire realm Muspel met, the frost giant Ymir and a cow named Odumla were the first created beings. In this creation story, the combination of fire and ice made life possible. Some mysterious life grew and thrived in the drops of melting water, which took the form of the giant Ymir. And later, the father god Odin and his brother slay this giant. And from this vast corpse, the nine worlds of Norse cosmology are formed. It is a brutal episode that combines an epic battle with immense geological change. As Ymir is slain, his wounds are like river cataracts. Blood gushes from them and creates an immense flood, which then becomes lakes and the sea. Once defeated, Ymir's body is carried to the middle of Gap and the victorious gods put his body to good use. From his flesh the earth is created, and the mountains are made from his unbroken bones. His teeth, jaws, and bone fragments become rocks and boulders. And then Odin and his brothers then raised Ymir's skull to form the sky, and cast glowing embers from Muspel into this celestial sphere to form sun and moon and stars. Here then are the mythic origins of that link between immense landscapes and gigantic beings. Trolls and giants are the mythic acknowledgement of immensity and the sublime yet simultaneously a, a strangely comforting act of humanization. Whether or not the explanation is true or not is not the point. Explanation of any kind gives a comprehensible shape to the world. And in this case, a knowable shape to Nordic landscapes, which are often dramatic, vast, mountainous, and tempestuous. Perhaps this bringing together, this conflation of the human and the mountain in the form of a troll or giant, also emphasizes the utter dependency of human life on the land. Called Jetta in Swedish or Jutul in Norwegian, trolls and giants are prominent in fables and in etiological legends explaining the origin of many huge rock formations, lakes, and the so-called giant's potholes. The Norwegian word Jutul stems from the Old Norse Jotun, which denotes a race of giants in opposition to man and gods. 
trolls and giants are disruptive and destructive beings, though occasionally they can be helpful. Massive, mostly self-centered, and able to gouge and shape hardy landscapes, they are not without a powerful nemesis, the sun. In much folklore, many a troll meets the fate of a strange sort of petrification. Contact with the sun immediately turns them to stone. And in the film Troll Hunter, the modern tendency towards magic realism in folklore is seen with a kind of pseudo-scientific explanation. And this is provided in that trolls turn to stone due to excessive calcification in the bones. Now, either way, the transformation is permanent, and if the lore is to be believed, many a strange rock formation in Scandinavian landscapes are the remnants of foolish Jotun, who could not find shelter from the all-powerful sun. So, from the pine-laden mountains and prosperous farms of the Vaga region in Norway to Imperial Copenhagen, from the jagged peaks and moss-laden cliffs of Iceland's west fjords, to the immense vertical sea cliffs of the Froe Islands, we will hear tales of earth-sculpting colossal beings. We will hear these tales of immensity from the mouth of a foreteller, a Norwegian word for storyteller. Our foreteller is a traveler who once sought shelter in a storm so grand he saw a cliff face falling into the roaring ocean and swears he saw a hand grasp it. This storyteller is known throughout the region for telling stories infused with poetry, for descriptions and phrasings that bring, out, that bring the worn out and well-known into new life. Like the myth-tellers of old, you feel you are being infused with something. He is a wise man reminiscent of Odin, all-father of the Norse pantheon the one-eyed man of wisdom who had hung upside down from a tree, suffered the elements and the threat of death, and like all father, now had something rare in the world, true wisdom. This storyteller has a way of recreating the meaning of life, of taking the familiar and making them exalted. And if anyone has seen the elusive giant beings, it would be him. Story 1. The Jutul and Johannes Blessum, Norway. I passed through a mountain kingdom of tremendous dimensions to see the Jutul's gate. I traveled along the Yendin Ridge, which cuts along with an edge like a scythe for miles and miles, and the height from which you gaze down upon the world below is wounding, cuts into you a kind of vertigo. I passed through quiet pine forests and around twinkling ice-green mountain lakes. I spent weeks talking gently to my own soul to remind it that it was not the only human soul in the known world. Such was my solitude that the beast gaze of reindeer and moose seemed to speak into my mind and greet me as a fellow creature. Finally, after many days of traveling, there it was, the Yultu's gate. My farmer guide stopped on a bridge over the wild river Fina, 
and my first glimpse of this sheer rock wall was through the soft, girlish frame of the hanging birch's floating garlands and the summer voluptuous foliage. Strange that it should frame the grim and rigid rock formation before me. Uncanny it was. Uncanny was the resemblance to a double gate in a pointed Gothic art. The rock gate loomed and leered at me. It boasted and bragged but silently, like the indifferent gaze of some lord or noble. Yet somehow it beckoned with authority, fed by mountain roots and chasm echo. This gate led to the Yultu Palace and permitted even the largest of trolls, those with fifteen heads, to pass through. My farmer guide reminded me of the custom. If you wanted to speak to the troll, you must throw a stone in the gate and say, Open up, Yutul. I told him that I was not surprised that the elderly troll purported to be lord and master here was not keen on visitors. The massive pile of stones suggested he was practically harassed by them. Of course, this begs the question, who would even want to speak with a Yutul? The answer was simple enough, the desperate. Those whose farms were barren are those who had been injured deep down by another man. They would welcome wisdom fed by mountain roots and chasm echo. They would welcome the brute strength of the Yutul's patronage. Or they welcomed death, and the Yutul could deliver all three. After a long silence, my farmer guide said quietly, I know the last man to have seen the Yutul, Johannes Sorgarden from Blessum, and he wished he hadn't. And this is the story the farmer told me. After having sought justice in Norway, with lords whose silent disdain seemed to boast and brag their superiority and your inferiority, Johannes traveled all the way to Copenhagen to have his right in a legal process. For there was no justice to be had in Norway, none at all. So, the farmer stood his ground in Imperial Copenhagen in a room as cold as Troll's breath, spoke his bit before the stone faces of the big boys, and thought to himself that those visages seemed as impossible as the Yultu's gate. Besides, the big boys always looked out for each other. And so, Johannes Sorgarden wandered the slush-spittled streets of Copenhagen on Christmas Eve, his heart as black as the winter sky. He would not get his land. That lord would, because the big boys always look out for each other. And so the world to him seemed as thin as ice skins on a lake surface, insubstantial and somehow patronizing. He was far from home and his in a mockery of what a home should be, rat-infested and frigid. And as Johannes wandered, the sky seemed to open up upon him like a black-mouthed beast, drew out his warmth, fed on the only power this nobody farmer had, his blood life. He felt dizzy in his soul and sad in his brain. The lord against whom he disputed would take delight in building a stone wall and devouring his land, his farm, with fifteen-headed troll greed. And while his family starved, this lord's face would be as impassable as the Yultu's gate. For the big boys only saw themselves 
and so looked out for each other. It happened suddenly as Johannes ruminated himself into a black pit of thinking. A strange sight. Stomping towards him was a mountain of a man in a white tunic with pocket clasps and buttons of silver. The fine clothes seemed incompatible somehow with his height and demeanor, which seemed full of both animal and shifting earth energy. And when he passed, Johannes swore the cobblestone streets shook with the impact. On a whim and with intrigue, Johannes ran alongside the mountain man. "'You walk with Odin's strides, you do,' Johannes exclaimed. "'Yes,' the man replied, his voice like an echo, and thunder and menacing void all in one. "'I'm in a hurry, for I'm going to Vaga.' "'That is my home. Oh, how I wish to go there,' Johannes returned breathlessly, trying to match the man's pace. "'You may go with me, for I have a horse that takes twelve strides in seven miles. "'Now,' Johannes knew the stories of old. He recognized this a cosmos-traversing equine, Odin's eight-legged horse, Sleipnir. His philia, his animal self, who the god rode in his many journeys across the nine worlds, held in the colossal branches and roots of the mighty world tree Yggdrasil. All the firelit tales of his youth flashed through his mind as this mountain man waited for his answer. Johannes nodded. Now, Johannes knew he was dealing with the Yutul, who are normally not so helpful. Nonetheless, he longed for home. Johannes was lambasted in body and mind as he clung onto the back of the mountain man's sledge standing upright on the two boards like skis that extended behind the seat. High, 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 so very high they were in the air, and Johannes's grip felt weak, poultry, infantile in the face of these gusty winds and impossible heights. The very immensity of the myths of old surrounded him, penetrated into him. Emir's great skull, the sky, Somehow his giant mind and will, his thought and intentions could be felt in the gnawing dragon-breath wind, in the great scattering of stars. At mind-shattering distances, there was cold, pure snow and black crevices that felt primordial, as if Johannes were gazing out over eons frozen Niflheim. And as he gripped and stood his weak mortal ground against these brutal exhalations of the sky— he saw a red glow on some distant night-shrouded landscape and thought of fiery Muspel. And the infinite swallowing blackness below and the height from which he gazed down upon that cavernous nothing was wounding. It cut into you a kind of vertigo. Johannes felt dizzy and weak and hungry and frozen and thought of simply letting go and falling into nothing. That is, until the sledge was suddenly still. This son of Ymir and his steed whose gait spanned the known world had stopped to rest on a black lava rock outcrop, with a cragginess that still seemed to contain the viscous memory of bubbling magma. The surrounding distances blasted the sight with nothing, gaping and wide-eyed in its silence, a silence that seemed to wait to be poised. 
and Johannes felt as if he were on an island floating in some sequestered colony of hell. If a curse was a surge of magic meant to strip a life of all baby fat and fire warmth, then this place was where curse itself dwelled and thrived. Johannes asked where they are, and the mountain men said that human lips just couldn't form the words, and that human minds cannot fathom them. And at the very peak of this night realm was a bulbous object on a pole. The object is craggy and disfigured as the very rock, an object that Johannes immediately realized was a rotten head, a death's head on a stake. Now, Johannes thought of the knithing poles of old, the pole with an animal's head, or sometimes even a human head, meant to channel and direct that surge of hate magic in a particular direction. The very ones used by men of old to turn impotent rage into life-destroying power. And as Johannes examined the red-stained rune carvings on the pole, he felt a looming presence behind him. And the Yutsul warned him, Do not stand too close. Those runes are biting hatred and anger into that wood. But do not worry, it is not directed at us. Nonetheless, the narrow-eyed anger that carved rocky channels into the soul, this burrowed into Johannes as that hatred and anger emanated from the stick, from the death's head. It made him think of that lord against whom he had disputed, who would take delight in building a stone wall and devouring his land, his farm, with fifteen-headed troll greed. And while his family starved, this lord's face would be as impassable as the Yultu's gate. For the big boys only saw themselves, and so looked out for each other. Johannes' thought of this, and hoped that death's head was burrowing its gaze into that hateful man's mind. And when Johannes heard the Yutul beckoning him back onto the sledge, it sounded as if he were at a great distance. For Johannes's mind was muffled by curse hatred. Despite the burning cold that he was about to face on that sledge, Johannes was glad to leave that place. And finally, Johannes recognized Yultu's rock despite the deep blackness of that moonless night and let out a relieved breath when he heard the rushing waters of the river Fina. Home. The sledge hit solid ground with a shaking thud and the sky-galloping steed stomped and snorted. The Yultu turned around in his seat and said, Now, you don't have far to go home, but promise me, Johannes, Promise me that you will not turn around if you hear a roar or see a flash of light. I promise, returned Johannes, who bowed deeply in gratitude and turned to walk home. Suddenly, daylight, daylight in the middle of the night, a beam of sun intensity like the sudden lighting of many thousands of candles. He could have found a needle on the ground by this light, which was like the sun and moon and all the stars dying in a last burst of power. And a roar, a gape-mawed roar, as if the god wolf Fenrir had loped down to earth to swallow it whole. 
a thunderous bawling that made his hearing muffled. And his mindscape was then flattened, all thought crushed beneath the weight of sensation. And in such a state, no human mind can remember instructions, for there is no thought, only instinct. And Johannes's instinct was to turn and look. Today, Johannes can only tell you that his eyes drank in something volcanic, something like an earthquake, and that his head, his skull, his neck contorted with the force like a hill battered by an eruption. And now every night he sees the Yotuth standing in that wide open rock gate, and this dream fills his misshapen head. Story 2, The Trolls of the West Fjords, Iceland Now the rocky immensity of Yultud's gate spit ferociously into my mind's eye and reminded me of another story that I heard from a land of moss-covered cliffs and opium-black volcanic rock with razor edges and gentle undulations from past fire and lava cataclysm. This landscape had a brooding, meditative quality, the epic eons-long calm after an ancient firestorm. And in this tale, delegates from villages across the West Fjords traveled to meet together in council. Indeed, to traverse this mountainous terrain would take days on foot, days of frost-white and emerald-green fields, by steam pools whose breath was a whispery massage to muscles lengthened and contracted by indifferent mountains. Hours over a land of immense cliffs slicing into blue waters, of elegant veils of biting cold water spilling over cliff edges with hissing, rumbling vigor. The matter must be serious, and indeed, as we shall see, it most certainly was. Over calf-straining elevation and opium-black rock traversed one woman, a delegate from her distant village, whose boy was crushed by a landslide. Another delegate also hiked with heavy strides from another direction, a hardy young man whose father had been carried away by stampeding terrified horses, a father found dead and broken on the side of a cliff. 
and from another direction, another man whose family faced destitution because his wares and luggage, which he was taking to market, had been stolen. And these were the stories of many delegates coming from many villages. Now, these delegates, who made a difficult two-day journey across this rocky land, they all agreed upon one thing, that unusual-looking boulders gripped and twitched before lifting from the mountaintop and disappearing. That bass-like humrumps and cavernous wolf growls were heard before the horses bolted in terror, and that after waking from a quick nap and seeing goods had been stolen, through sleepy, drowsy eyes, something rock-like and almost leprous loped with booming strides into a black, sunless valley. And when the large group of delegates met in the candlelit meeting tent, they only whispered the word, Yutul, for fear that their words would reverberate in the dip, dripping cavern of troll ears. They all felt very small in the middle of a very large problem. There had been the complete destruction of livelihood and loved ones, and in that pioneer land you held fur and food and the warm skin of your loved ones like an offering to the gods. In that room was sorrow that ran as deep as a fjord, so motionless it was like a brooding leviathan. Yet there is something heroic in their upright stature, a stateliness in the resolved way in which they placed hands on knees, leaned forward and looked with openness into the vast horizon of another's sorrowful face. They deliberated for hours before whispering, yes, only whispering a possible solution. Send someone to the hidden folk. Indeed, the very name spoken was an invocation, for the fairy people, the elves of Iceland, were as potently magical as an infinite forest of rune staves. They were neither good or bad, but certainly not to be trifled with. And such beings required special human diplomats. And they chose one fey young man, who everyone had suspected had been Hugstjolen, or kidnapped and held captive for a time by the Huldefolk. He, as all those who have been kidnapped, was never quite the same again, but had been given strange abilities of healing and second sight. He was sent to Bjarmarstein Rock, where the Huldefolk had been sensed and glimpsed in shadow and side sight so often that every Icelander suspected there must be a thriving colony. Surely, these ancient children of hidden dimensions, whose earth magic was like respiration and their authority rock-like and root-tangled with the very heart of the world, surely they could use their subtle magic to sway the Yultul. For some days, the Holdefolk diplomat remained at his task, nearly imploring the elven folk to help them negotiate with the Yultul. If they would only intervene, the trolls would surely leave them in peace. Nonetheless, when he returned, he only shook his head. And as all the delegates listened with dropping hearts, he told them he could not prevail upon the hidden folk to intervene. After all, this was a human affair, and the trolls were not actively destroying the earth. Silence for a time. That feeling of being small and stuck and overwhelmed, united and yet separated them into their own brooding thoughts. 
Then the kind of urgency that takes its last stand in desperate circumstances began in one and then animated the whole gathering. They discussed, argued, shouted, and whispered with some intensity until the Holtefolk delegate, staring past the tent flap into black night, said the one word that stopped the whole meeting. Vikings. Silence again, and then, let's summon the Viking warriors. There's a great deal of nodding and murmured approval at that. Indeed, who else could challenge the earth-shaking strength of the Yultu besides adventurers as solid as mountains yet as fluid as cold northern seas? So it was decided. And overhearing this decision, hidden by nocturnal shadow and kin boulders, was a form so cyclopean that it could not be truly seen. And at the word Viking, a terrible tremble coursed through skin that was rock leprous and leathery. With sonorous steps, the Yultu, who had been hiding behind a boulder, hurried to the cave where his companions in mayhem waited for him. He had terrible news to bring. In a dank mountain cavern, which looked like a jagged bite and was only accessible by a razor-edge path of enormous rock, in this cavern there was bass-like shouting and cavernous wolf growls. To hear the deliberations of the Yultu was like listening to feral child men who had learned speech just after years of isolation in the wilds. Mixed with whining aggression, there was animal cunning, and the most base and spiteful of negotiations. Through the wor- though the words were incomprehensible, if a human were to overhear, they would sense the initial fear and panic, the shouting helplessness, and then the smug, smooth tones of a solution and the glittering titter of a one-sided deal. The idea was this. If the Yultu had to tear the earth to pieces, if they had to make the West Fjords peninsula into a bloody island, if they had to gouge the earth and surround the region with water, they would. They were no match for these seamen, whose fast and fluid movements were as brutal as river cataracts. They were no match for the Vikings, for slaughter wolves, who went into blood-vision trances and tore out the innards of beasts much larger than themselves. But... If they were surrounded by water, they could sink the Viking boats with massive rocks hurled from the shore and send the bastards into that watery otherworld. And when the dreaded sun sank below the horizon, the three Yultu grunted their readiness and emerged into the night to complete their task. If you could send your soul into the Great Eagle, one of the guardians of Iceland, and soar over the West Fjords, you would see something like a lumpy three-fingered hand jutting westward from Iceland, a portion of land that was attached by a strip of land. These are the West Fjords, but they were not always shaped this way, though they are now because of a Yultul deal gone awry. Now here is how it happened. Two of the more conniving Yultul positioned themselves in the south of the West Fjords, at Bretha Fjorther, wielding primitive-looking hoes and shovels that had been fashioned 
from biting and tearing violence, gnarled wood and rock that snarled in their own way. The third Yultul positioned herself in the south of Hunaflowe Fjord, grunting with satisfaction as she fixed the gigantic plow to a mountain-sized ox. She felt that though there were two of her kin going in the opposite direction, she had the advantage. She felt her animal energy surge at one simple resolution. She would meet them in the middle and get her fair share of the land. For that was the agreement. In the attempt to make an island of the West Fjords, two of them would shovel a trench as vast as the primordial Gununigap in a southerly direction, while the other would plow to the very roots of the earth towards the north. And when the water rushed in to fill the gap, the West Fjords would be theirs, a private island, and any approaching Viking ships could be easily sunk by boulders hurled from the shores. And the pathetic humans living there would also be theirs to terrorize. They began their work, and the rumblings and shakings and earthquakes had the distant villagers cowering in absolute terror all of them whispering prayers that the messenger they had sent to summon the Vikings had indeed reached them. For this was not the normal world tremors every Icelander was accustomed to. No, this was hoes and shovels larger than pine trees slicing into the earth and making her shriek. This was soil and rock being flung with velocities faster than wind and thought. This was convulsions that could bring down all the nine worlds of the cosmos. It was truly monstrous. The earth was utterly subdued and submissive and trembling, and her usurped dignity enveloped all the denizens of the West Fjords. And indeed, when I was told this story, my friend said to me, sometimes when you're small and vulnerable, you're just small and vulnerable. And all that's left is to wait for the sun to inevitably rise. And sometimes you must rely on the fact that the Yultul will eventually trip over their own feet, so precariously propelled by singular and unthinking ambition. And as the northbound oxen plowing Yultul neared middle ground and saw the other two much closer to the finish line, when she realized she would now be allocated a pitiful piece of land with few human slaves to terrorize. Well, she slammed her shovel into a cliff face, and a huge section of this rock went flying into Stangrim's Fjordur. And this is what is now the island of Grimsey. The villagers all continued to cower and tremble, convinced they would stand and find themselves on a piece of land broken off from the rest, an island floating in cold, lonely northern waters. Now, in our darkest moments, my friend had said, we sometimes rely on the proverbial sun to rise. But in this case, it was not so proverbial. As this celestial fire shot its first golden rays over the horizon, it struck the terrified rocky profiles of two Yutul, who tried crawling into the reducing shade of a mountain but were soon petrified, an eerie silence cutting off their groans. And the third tried to scramble over the cliffs and run, but she was too slow. And today, 
you can see all that is left of her. The profile of her face watching over Grimsey Island from a coastal town. Story three, the troll woman's finger, the Faroe Islands. The preluding winds were blunt forces, almost visible to the inner eye as jaws chomping and gnawing into the outer edges of the islands. From the north and the south, this omen chiseled at the coast and tormented the waters into a booming, spraying frenzy. In the north village of Athy, at the mouth of a channel between Westeroy and Stremoy, an immense wave traveled from behind the horizon, gained shattering force and slammed into a huge headland. And the wave was so colossal it nearly swallowed the towering cliff. And to the south, the villagers in Vagar saw a similar sight. One enormous sea swell, bulging with the force of water-swallowing distance. This too crashed into sea cliffs and spit a fine mist high into the sky. The world was all booming quake. All color and sound and subtlety was swallowed up by this mayhem, and the fear-contracted senses of the quaking villagers could take in nothing else. The lowering clouds further darkened the world as the sun finally settled to hibernate below the horizon, now an indistinct charcoal gray. And from the north and south, massive black forms began to emerge from that obscurity from the horizon, sending great heralding waves swelled with omen and bite. From the north, ocean-traversing Yultul whose legs were as long as great Yggdrasil, whose feet currently caused mayhem on the ocean floor. They arrived at Athi, and those who dared peek out of a window saw statures and dimensions and enormity that snapped the finer lines of the mind, made even the strongest of them babble and lullaby themselves with the madman's rocking. Now, the farmer warrior who told me the story was of a different constitution, purportedly a shapeshifter, one who had seen terror and spirit in distant climes where night prevailed. He could bear it, and he did. He was convinced that the two Yultul who he watched from his coastal hut had been conjured by some great Icelandic sorcerer, one even kings did not trifle with. He felt it rather than knew it, but his suspicions quickly were confirmed. He watched the Yutul in parts, for they were too massive to take in with a glance. As they approached a point of land called Itzkoler, one of the giants stood out from the coast as if watching the actions of the other, while an ancient crone of Yutul climbed up on the cliff head. And through the gloom he saw a massive long strip of something, and at first he thought it must be the Midgard serpent. The circumference was so mind-boggling. Ah, but then he saw it was a rope. Then the other Yultul moved forward and he saw their plan. 
the crone would pull the enormous cliff head and tip it onto the other's back. Or perhaps they planned to pull the whole of the island. There had been whispered rumors of late that an Icelandic sorceress had been consulted in gloomy secret, that she had been prevailed upon to summon the most ancient of Jutul, earth-moving giants who could grasp and carry the tiny fro islands as easily as market wares on a back. Iceland wanted more land, was hungry for more land for those settlers fleeing the murderous toddler tantrums of the Norwegian King Harold. And from the south as well, he felt great heralding winds, battering his hut with omen and bite. He sensed, rather than saw, a giant form approaching there as well. It is said that air shrieked and cackled as the dark colossus approached the ragged southern coast of Vogar, where sheer cliff faces sliced vertically into the sea. One foolish soul who watched from their windows says that now they suffer from constant vertigo, that the part of their soul that balances the cardinal directions, that brings together all the points of the world, including the zenith and the nadir, well, that this had somehow snapped beneath the weight of observing the troll witch. If the two in the north were massive, the troll witch's immense being seemed to contain dimensions and worlds. Her head reached into the celestial sphere, and perhaps she was even a descendant of the mighty Emir. Every move she made agitated wind and water into brute and solid forces. When she knelt down slightly and wrapped her arms around the coast, huge chunks of rock broke away and avalanched into the sea. Tremors reverberated throughout the whole of the Fro Islands. It was clear what this descendant of Emir was going to do. She intended to expand Iceland's territory. Yet, the paradoxical weakness of those who wield booming, screeching power is that they cannot sense the subtleties that will cause their downfall. And indeed, a subtle glow began to emerge on the horizon. And this is what the farmer warrior and the foolish soul felt and heard and saw. The sudden outbreak of white light, arctic cloud-filtered sun, but sun nonetheless. Groans and creaks like the settling of an ancient and enormous house and one last onslaught of those preluding winds, which were blunt forces almost visible to the inner eyes as jaws chomping and gnawing into the outer edges of the islands. One last blast of the omen-filled wind chiseled at the coast and the tormented and tormented the waters into a booming, spraying frenzy. And as daylight came into its fullness, the farmer warrior watched the petrification of the two Jutul who had foolishly tried to flee back to Iceland. And the foolish onlooker in the south saw something even more extraordinary. The troll witch, now solid stone, fell backwards into the sea, enveloped in swells and whirlpools that threatened to pull the whole of the world into their depths. And today, off the north coast of the Froes, 
the Jutul and his wife stand facing Iceland, a kind of longing in their forms. And to the south, one solitary pillar of rock hold, Trollkonefinger, the troll woman's finger. And now for the outro. Many thanks again to Simon Hughes for his translation of the first story from the original Norwegian. Um, Simon translates Norwegian stories into English that have not been previously translated, which gives you access to Norwegian folklore and folk tales that are indeed fascinating. For more stories previously not available in English, see his website at www.norwegianfolktales.blogspot.com And another thank you to Coag Music, a fine purveyor of free tunes. You can find Coag Music on YouTube. And some exciting developments. I have a live storytelling show in the making called Poet Pioneers, where I will retell some epic stories from the Icelandic sagas. If you happen to live in the south of England, or maybe even a bit further afield, I am making plans to do the performance somewhere in the Bournemouth area. More updates will be on my Facebook page, so be sure to like and follow the page now. I've also, and this is very exciting, been invited by the BBC to participate in a panel discussion on Norse myth and landscape this August, and that's for the proms intervals. Again, I'll keep everyone updated on the details, and please, again, follow the Facebook page because that would be the prime way. However, um, if you follow me on Twitter or even on Instagram, I will make sure that information is put there as well. So again, please keep posted at all things Mythos by liking the Facebook page and following me on Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show, head over to Patreon and find out how. Thank you very much. <laughs>